Pachango. Greetings, Earthlings. Welcome to another episode of Tangentially Speaking. This one is with a guy named Elliot Swartz. He's a scientist at a nonprofit called the Good Food Institute, focused on building an innovative ecosystem that will accelerate the development of alternatives to conventional production of meat, eggs, and dairy. I'm reading from his email. Our organization's theory of change is that we can avoid or mitigate the many negative externalities of industrial meat production by instead making meat from plants or growing it directly from animal cells. He's been focused on cultivated lab-grown meat for the last six years. And um, yeah, he's a, he's a smart guy. Very, very interesting. This is a somewhat unusual episode of the podcast in that I book the guy, even though I kind of come to it with a pretty skeptical um, mindset, which is not to say that I'm not open to being wrong about things, I hope, um, but you know, generally, I, I've been, it's a funny thing about getting older. Those of you who are my age or, or beyond me know what I'm talking about. I was thinking the other day, it's like, you know, we talk about how our elders have a certain amount of wisdom and we assume that that's because they have experience. You know, they've been around the block a few times. They've seen things come and go. And that's the source of their wisdom. I, I think there's also another source of wisdom that at least I hadn't really appreciated until I started to get closer to it, which is that there's a liberation in not giving a shit anymore. There's a liberation in not having a long future stretching out in front of you where you have to sort of be careful about things or or just uh, be prepared for this long haul out in front of you you can you can basically kind of be like yeah whatever you know like I could start smoking right now I'm 62 maybe it's time to start smoking tobacco right because if it takes 30 years to get lung cancer I don't give a shit you know maybe maybe we should um, sort of focus on it's not that you shouldn't have bad habits. It's that you should time them properly. <laughs> you should, we should like have a schedule of our bad habits, right? You get to a certain age. It's like, uh, you know, I think my liver can handle another 10 or 15 years of uh, alcohol abuse. If that's what I want to do, or my lungs can handle some tobacco. Anyway, why the fuck am I talking about that? Uh, I think, oh, because, as I say to Elliot in this conversation, it's it's kind of like I've seen these miracle cures get presented over and over and over again in my day. And I've yet to see one that really works out, 
you know, like I think I, I mentioned to him how when I was a kid, margarine was the thing. It's, you know, margarine is healthy and doesn't have cholesterol and it's low in this and high in that and it's all perfect and I can't believe it's not butter. It tastes just like butter, but it's so much better for your arteries. And then, you know, they take millions and millions of dollars and sell all this shit to people. And then only 20, 30 years ago, does it become apparent that that was all a bunch of bullshit. That was some industrial fucking oils and lubricants and all this byproduct from some industrial process that they threw some yellow food coloring into it and tossed it in bins and marketed it as the natural alternative. Meanwhile, how much damage was done? How many cases of cancer? How much destruction to the environment? How much destruction to our trust in the food system and the regulatory systems and the government and all these different systems that are supposed to be protecting us from people selling us poison and calling it natural, better for your arteries. I used to, I mean, I was such a naive kid, right? I thought, well, if they're selling it, it must be healthy. They wouldn't be allowed to sell it if it wasn't good for you. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so lab-grown meat, that's going to solve our problem, right? That's going to solve our environmental problems and solve the problems of how we treat animals and solve the health problems and all this. And yeah, uh, maybe, but I kind of am at the point in my life now where I'm very skeptical of these stories. I mean, how many times have I read that free energy was right around the corner? Oh, major breakthrough in nuclear fusion, which is going to provide free, endless, limitless, clean energy to everyone in the world. Uh-huh. Okay. I think the first time I read that kind of headline was probably 40 years ago. And I've probably seen it come bubble up to the surface five, six times since then. Still waiting for that free energy. And I don't believe it would be free anyway. I think if even if they did figure out a source of free, limitless, clean energy, they'd still find a way to charge us for it. Everything's got to have a price tag on it. Everything has to be commodified. So anyway, uh, it's a somewhat unusual conversation in that I come at it with a somewhat skeptical, not to say hostile perspective. And that makes me a little uncomfortable because Elliot is clearly a very smart, decent guy. And, you know, it's this, it's this situation I find myself in quite often these days where it's kind of, uh, you know, I'm, I'm engaged in a conversation with someone and I'm torn between being honest and being kind. And it's kind of hard to find the middle ground. Um, I feel like if I'm honest with courtesy, that's, I guess, as close as I can get. But sometimes it's hard. It's like if I'm talking to someone, you know, who I know has a couple of little kids and we're talking about, you know, or they ask me straight up, like, where do you think the world's going? You know, what do you think's happening? And I'm thinking, God damn it, this guy's got these little kids. He doesn't want to hear where I think the world is going, you know, but he's asking me. And so, 
yeah, it's one of those conversations uh, where I'm trying to be both honest and kind. Speaking of honesty and kindness, if you are interested in meeting people and being in a place uh, where honesty and kindness are are really what it's all about, I hope you'll consider joining us this summer at the Budokan Sexaton Retreat in Montana. Uh, I've mentioned it before, and I will keep mentioning it as we get closer uh, until we're totally booked up. Um, I think we're about half booked up at this point. Um, but I would really encourage you, if if you sort of, you know, I, I hear from a lot of people who are frustrated um, because they are weirdos in their town or family and but they don't think they're weird they think everybody else is weird are you one of those people i'm i'm one of those people i think i'm kind of normal but i think we live in a very abnormal world and um so people who are not out of step with that world can be hostile to people who are normal in the way that you and I are normal. Like, I think it's normal to talk about sex and shame and uh, desire openly. I, I think shame is a toxin, and the way we detoxify ourselves is by being honest and open and clear. And when you do that with a group of people who share that belief system, it's incredibly empowering and cleansing because you see that you're not the only one who's dealing with this stuff and you're not the only one who's carrying this totally unnecessary burden. Um, and that's what we try to do at these retreats. We, we try to cultivate an atmosphere where people are free to let go of this shit that we don't really need to be carrying, right? And um, and cultivate a space of of support and kindness and honesty and openness. And um, I know that's hard to find in life. It's hard to find in small town America or Brazil or Germany or wherever you happen to be, because most people just don't want to go there. Most people don't want you to go there because it puts them in a weird spot. Um, most people don't want to go that deep. They just want to skim across the surface and, you know, get their work done and, uh, get to the weekend and then get to retirement and check out and do the whole thing without getting in trouble. Yeah. Well, that's one way to go about it. But if you're more interested in going deeper and really looking at life and really thinking about things and really doing some work to try to get your shit together and lined up so that you can either help the relationship you're already in go to a deeper place or prepare yourself to go to a deeper place in your next relationship or just in in yourself in your relationship with your own life and with the world around you uh, that's what we're trying to do at these events. So if that sounds interesting to you, I hope you'll go to budokan.com and look at the event, Sex at Dawn event, 
And uh, yeah, check it out. See if uh, if it makes sense to you. It's June 21st to 26th in Whitefish, Montana. And uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. I, I might have scared you with that description. I, I hope not. It's not like, you know, people wailing and screaming and crying. It's not that kind of thing. It's comfortable. It's really good food, beautiful place. Swimming in lakes, sitting in the sauna, taking a cold plunge, going for a run, going for a walk in the woods. It's a very comfortable, nourishing, sort of revitalizing experience. And um, yeah, in that kind of a situation, the honesty and the and the shamelessness, in a good sense, flow pretty naturally. So I hope you'll consider joining us there. Okay, uh, what else? Budokan.com, sex at dawn. That's it. What else do I need to talk about? I'm looking at my post-it notes to see if there's anything here. I got some other things to talk about, but not today. All right, this is Elliot Schwartz. I hope you enjoy this episode. This one's uh, no commercials, no paywall. This one's free for everybody. Thank you for listening. I really appreciate your support. If you're not subscribed to my Substack, please consider it. chrisryan.substack.com You can subscribe for free or you can uh, throw in five bucks a month if you want to. Appreciate you. Talk to you again soon. All right, cool. I'm here with Elliot Schwartz. Welcome, Elliot. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So um, before we started uh, recording here, we were talking about how I think you originally heard me on Rogan many years ago, um, which is interesting given the subject matter that uh, that we're going to talk about today, which is something that Rogan would probably find very disturbing <laughs> uh, given his fame as a carnivore. Why don't you talk a little bit about what you're doing and, and why you reached out? Sure. Yeah. So, so I'm a, I'm a scientist that works for a nonprofit organization that is basically trying to help develop alternatives to conventionally uh, produced meat, egg and dairy products. And so, you know, sort of how we break that down, at least, is into plant-based alternatives. So making meat alternatives from just plant ingredients, things that are already on the market, like Beyond Meat Burgers or Impossible products. Um, there's also ways to produce animal proteins like whey protein or casein protein in microbes. So using bacteria or yeast as sort of factories to produce these individual proteins that can then serve as ingredients into a variety of different products like milks and cheeses, et cetera. And then what I specialize in is cultured meat or lab grown meat or cultivated meat. It sort of has been called many different things over the, the course of its existence. But essentially the concept is, you know, we can create the same meat that people are familiar with from an animal, but without having to kill or slaughter an animal. So essentially taking the stem cells from that animal, creating the muscle, the fat, the connective tissues, et cetera, using them as a, either as ingredients into products or just, you know, forming an actual filet or steak or, or something like that. Um, and so I'm, I'm trained as a stem cell biologist. Um, this is certainly not what I envisioned doing when I entered grad school. 
Um, but it's something that I learned about along the way and sort of aligned with my values with respect to climate change, you know, concern over sort of what's going on with respect to, to climate change as well as animal welfare and things like that. And so decided to, to sort of make a career out of that, um, you know, five and a half, six years ago. Right. And you work for, remind me the name of the organization. The so good, it's called the, the Good Food Institute. Good Food Institute, right. Um, who funds the Good Food Institute? I looked on the webpage and I, I couldn't find it. Yeah, so we're a 501c3 nonprofit organization. So it's entirely funded by philanthropy. What that means is that basically there's high net worth individuals, philanthropic foundations where you're awarded grants, and then just everyday people like you and me or people that want to sort of support this cause. And so we um, we have about 100 or so employees in the United States, and we also have affiliate organizations that are based in Brazil, Europe, Israel, India, and Asia Pacific, uh, based out of Singapore. And so, you know, we sort of work under the collective vision, but we do that in each of our respective regions because there's different sort of, you know, considerations politically or economically, socioeconomically, et cetera. Right. Um, but is that information about like major donors? Is that publicly available or is that um, private information? The reason I ask is I was I was looking around a little bit this morning and I saw that um, I forget which one if it's Beyond Beef or you know one of those sort of famous uh, the, the, you know the the leading companies in that area are funded by Archer Daniels, Midland, Tyson Foods. You know, um, so clearly there is, uh, you know, some carpetbagging going on in the industry where, you know, it's like the tobacco companies buying up marijuana farms. You know, it's like, oh, here's an alternative to that terrible tobacco, which we also own, you know. <laughs> uh, so that's why I ask if this is public information, if. You guys are funded by, you know, major beef manufacturers or chicken manufacturers. That's worth knowing. Yeah, so we we don't take corporate dollars. I mean, aside from sponsorships for conference events that we host like basically once a year or every other year is probably what we're moving towards. But that's basically the only corporate dollars that we take, as well as for our research grants program. We are, uh, we, we, I think, could take that depending on. The situation, but to fund our actual programmatic work, there's no corporate dollars that that are taken or industry sort of funded dollars behind that. Um, and you asked about sort of transparency. I think you know because you're a, a, a C3 nonprofit in the United States, there's tax reporting that you have to do, and a lot of that is publicly available information. Mm -hmm. Although I I don't know exactly where to find that. I just know that I think you can from googling. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. I think that should be publicly available. Maybe you need a Freedom of Information Act request or something, but it, I think you're right. It is filed publicly. Yeah, but I mean, to, to your larger point, I mean, that's that's definitely, I think, you know, something that is, you know, could be viewed as a, as a negative um, in terms of like big ag, big meat corporations being involved. Um, obviously, there's influence, as you've seen, sort of similar to like what we see with renewable energy and, and oil companies and, you know, sort of a lot of talk and no walk, you know, in terms of actually transitioning. Um, but, you know, there's also a potential positive aspect where, you know, if if we do want to transition to something that's away from factory farming or more industrialized animal agriculture, 
Well, maybe some of the best way to do that is to actually have these companies on board to, to realize that switch. So there's arguments on, on both sides of the, I think, of the coin there. Yeah, there always is. <laughs> I've yet to find a single-sided coin, um, you know, as, as much as I'd love to. Uh, so let, let's get into the the sort of introductory arguments that people have around this. And, and first of all, let, let me clarify, are, are you like a spokesperson for your, for the organization or is this just you, uh, you know, <laughs> wanting to have a chat publicly? No, I mean, I, I reached out because like I, I value science communication and I think it's important for people to try to understand and make sense of like this new technology that I think is going to play an increasingly important role as time moves forward, especially with respect to climate change and, and things like that. So I think you'll be hearing about these alternatives a lot more in the, in the same vein that we've heard about like electric vehicles to replace, you know, you know, uh, combustion vehicles, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I mean, when I was in graduate school, first learning about climate change, um, I think I became really frustrated because I could go online and look at the data and understand the story and understand, you know, just how much of an understanding we actually do have with respect to the directionality that things are headed in. And yet, you know, the public seemed to be entirely disconnected from that level of understanding the media's influence on terms of like how the story is told, et cetera, can get distorted in either direction, whether it's hype or, 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 or you know, sort yeah. of dismissal and things like that. And so I've, I've found that the best way for, for me to like try to, you know, communicate science is for me to do it myself uh, because relying on a journalist to be able to, you know, talk to you about a study that you've done or to try to get an understanding of this very complex sort of scientific field or, or um, you know, goals that are, that are trying to be uh, obt obtained. Um, you know, it's, some of them can do it, but a lot of them can't. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's what I, I do. I spend, you know, time online trying to, um, you know, be a reliable source of information, but I do think podcasts are probably like one of the most efficient and effective forms of communicating just because you can kind of dive into the details and free form. Right. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I just wanted to clarify, though, are you like, is this part of your job or because I don't want to get you in trouble, right? Like if, if <laughs> I don't want your boss to be like, what the fuck are you doing on Chris Ryan's podcast? He has porn stars on there, you know? Oh, no, I mean, I I have a lot of autonomy over what I, I do. Um, so, I mean, we I, like depending on where this conversation goes, like, yeah, we might, you know, repost it on our like public channels I, I will i definitely will but it's okay. definitely on my own accord this conversation okay. it's i have no like that my communications team doesn't know that i'm doing this but i'm sure they'd be happy to learn that i did <laughs> <laughs> we'll see we'll um see. okay yeah. <laughs> okay um so so you're a stem cell scientist which is is that considered is that a branch of biology or chemistry or medicine or wh where what does that mean to study what department are you working in when you do that? <laughs> yeah, I, well, both of my degrees are actually in neuroscience. Um, but in terms of like my actual hands-on application work, it was basically what I what I tried to study was, you know, taking stem cells uh, or cells from patients with neurodegenerative diseases in this case, 
um, turning them into stem cells that, that are embryonic like in that they can turn into any cell of the body. And so the idea with this sort of uh, technology is called induced pluripotent stem cells or cellular reprogramming. It was actually awarded a Nobel prize about 10 years ago. Um, but this allowed you to basically have the genetic makeup of the patient that you're studying. So if you want to understand what's going wrong with their neurons, well, you can actually turn those stem cells into neurons and try to understand the underlying biology of the disease. So I'm, I'm like a cell and molecular biologist by training, but I've worked a lot with, with stem cells in particular. So it's a, I think you can view it as a, as a division of cell and molecular biology or developmental biology, but certainly square in the biology department, I'd say. Okay. Right. Uh, so if I understood what you just said correctly, you can take cells from a patient, uh, modify them so they become stem cells. So, but does, yes. a, does stem, do stem cells, they still contain the DNA of that patient, but they're right. able to turn into any kind of cell with that DNA? There's different types of stem cells that are sort of defined by what you would call potency or their ability to basically form into different tissues and cell types within the body. Um, so embryonic stem cells are sort of like, you know, they're like the holy grail because they can turn into anything. Okay. Um, and basically what some scientists in Japan discovered is that if you express certain genes that are really highly upregulated in embryonic stem cells, and you put those genes into like just a normal skin cell or blood cell, you can turn those back into a, an embryonic like cell just because that sort of like triggers the machinery to transform that cell into another reprogram that cell into another cell type entirely. So it's a pretty powerful technology. It's used quite abundantly now in biomedical research. Wow. Yeah, that's fascinating. I've I've been kind of vaguely aware of developments in, in stem cell research, and it's always confused me how you can just inject stem cells into a, a trauma site or or a severed uh you know neuron or something, and the cells know what to do. Like they know how to heal that trauma somehow innately. It's it's fascinating. There's a lot of intrinsicness to biology that, you know, once you get the cell into what it sort of is, then you put it into its native environment and yet it, it sort of knows what to do. There's signals floating around in the yeah. sort of milieu there that just sort of help it work. But uh, of course, things can go wrong, too. So that's that's, you know, the, the challenge with regenerative medicine is, you know, cellular therapies. Um, you know, which is taking, you know, stem cells to replace different organs or tissues or use them therapeutically. Um, it's still very much in development. I mean, there's still a lot of challenges to really get those to functionally integrate into your body and, and do what you want them to do over time. So when, when someone has liver damage, for example, um, the liver is one of the organs that's able to regenerate itself up to a point. Is right. that is that sort of a naturally induced production of stem cells that's going on in the liver? Yeah. So a lot of your, a lot of your, uh, you know, mature organs have reservoirs or pools of stem cells that can become activated under certain uh -huh. states. So it's in a similar thing, like, you know, with a wound that gets healed, 
you have stem cells that get triggered, they sort of close it up. I mean, and different tissues have different capabilities, but yeah. Do, the, the do they move around? Sort of, sorry to interrupt you. Do, do those stem cells move around the body or are they located in different? So if I cut my hand, for example, the skin that's healing, are those regenerative stem cells already located in that area or are they coming from bone marrow or something like white blood cells? I think it depends. I mean, I think I'm not like an expert in all, in all of this, but I, I think, you know, if you have a wound, you would get, you know, some white blood cell infiltration that comes obviously from other elsewhere in your body. And that's generated those, those uh, stem cells, your blood stem cells are created in the marrow, for instance. Um, but with your skin in particular, I mean, fibroblasts are just like, there's, because your skin is, you know, it always ex- facing the world. Um, you know, those cells are just pretty rapidly dividing, but you'll notice like, you know, if you get a scratch on your face, it'll close up much faster than a scratch on your back. And and that's sort of like also intrinsic to the actual like location of your body that again is like more exposed, I guess, over time ev- evolution has, has sort of done that for us, you know? That's interesting. Right. So it's sort of anticipated that you're going to get more face scratches than back scratches. Yeah. Uh, that's, yeah. that's really interesting. And I, and I imagine, you know, the inside of the mouth and the digestive system is also probably just as fast or faster than any exterior skin. Exactly. And actually when you, when you take, um, you know, if, you, when you do research and development, you want fast dividing cells just because it's going to give you faster R and D cycles. So actually a lot of, um, uh, sort of skin tissue samples that you would get can actually come from actually like the genital area is one area that can regenerate quite, quite quickly. Um, so, you know, that could be like the origin of your stem cell that you're, you're, you're sort of getting in, in the lab is like someone's, you know, a, a little skin biopsy from that region because they grow really fast. So you're, t- well, speak for yourself, man. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so you're telling me like, I don't have the same dick I had five years ago. It's totally it's a different guy's dick now. Um, I'm not sure exactly, but <laughs> probably to some extent. Uh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, that that's fascinating. Um, and, you know, one of the medical myths that I've seen expire uh, over the last few decades is the idea that neurons don't regenerate. I remember when when I was, you know, in college or or around there, there was the understanding was that you're born with a certain number of neurons mm-hmm. and that's it. So if you drink alcohol or you have a head trauma or whatever, like that's it. You're it's just loss, loss, loss. But recently I've been reading that actually you can stimulate um neuronal generation through you know, whatever, doing, learning a new language or, and it play a musical instrument or whatever, challenge yourself. And that actually stimulates new, new synapses, new connections, but also nerve growth. Is that accurate? Yeah. So they, the, basically there, yeah, the nuance, I think over the last, you know, couple of decades is, is that certain regions of your brain can actually uh, grow new neurons. So like your olfactory bulb, uh, for instance, um, you can actually get adult neurogenesis in that region. I think there's parts of your like hippocampus and memory structure that can, can do that as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, otherwise 
you know, you're always forming new connections, you know, but other things can make these things, you know, more plastic over time. Like, you know, psychedelic use, for instance, can, you know, stimulate dendritic growth and, and things like that. But in that case, you're really taking the existing architecture of the brain and, and growing it in new ways. They're not necessarily new cells being born. That's oh, only, okay. a, a, only confined to very um, specific parts of the brain in adults. Right. Right. Yeah. Fascinating. Okay. So let, let's turn to the myth uh, or not the myth, the, the meat situation. Um, some of the central arguments uh, are ethical health, environmental, I guess those are the three, as I see it, the three sort of pillars of, of this movement. Uh, let's take them one at a time. So ethically uh, I guess the argument would be, by growing meat in a lab, we're um, liberating animals from suffering and and you know needless pain and and so on. Um, what about the idea that life eats life, and that's just the way it is? It's the way it's inescapable. I I feel like there's a a really good intention behind whether it's veganism or or the industry you're in to try to um, change something that's fundamental about life itself. Um, how do you feel about that? Is lab grown meat alive? Are we still eating life? Just a different form of it? Yeah. So, I mean, there's different, there's different ways that um, you can actually sort of think about this in, in sort of future scenarios. So, to get the cells from the animal, you can biopsy just sort of like how we were talking about before. You can, you can take like a, bio, a muscle biopsy or a fat biopsy, and that's how you get the original gen cells. Genital to, biopsy uh, <laughs> is what you're really taking. Let's be honest here. Yeah, I think not. In the, I think we would probably avoid that in this case. But um, <laughs> you can do that with mm -hmm. a living animal, or you can also do that from a recently slaughtered animal. You know, which might have important considerations for like halal or other religious considerations, for instance. Um, and you know, depending on how you want to sort of use these cells, you can actually have one biopsy that becomes what we refer to as immortal, or it can proliferate indefinitely in the culture. So like therefore, Henrietta. you actually, yeah. So like like famous cell lines that have right. been used, like the HeLa cell line that you were referring to. Um, so by doing that, which is what most companies in this sector are doing then you don't actually need the animal anymore. Like you don't have to go back to the animal. Another way to do it is to do repetitive sort of biopsies of the animal. So you can keep a smaller herd of animals and use those as source cell material um, so that you're still sort of, you know, sort of have this coexistence with, you know, you know, a farm, for instance. And there's some companies doing, doing that as well. Um, but yeah, to your, to your point, I think um, it, there is a bit of, you know, where we can entirely remove the animal out of the equation that, that that possibility exists. So it's definitely interesting, you know, with respect to how we've been doing things for the last 10,000, you know, it, it, our, our existence, essentially. I think, you know, we are still consuming the same animal flesh that, you know, would come from an animal. It's just without having to raise the animals. And I think, Therein lies the sort of advantage uh, is that the way that we currently grow animals is pretty 
abhorrent in most cases. Like the vast majority of meat is, you know, com- comes from places in like that are most people consider to be factory farms that, you know, these animals are confined, um, you know, pretty filthy conditions, et cetera. Um, and so this is a way to sort of divorce that part of where civilization has has taken us thus far. And so it's it's not to say that people can't still raise animals and eat animals and go hunting and do all of that. Um, but it's hopefully to have a, a sort of more balanced coexistence with the animals of the world. Okay. So, so, but just to define terms is, you know, you said that you would still be eating flesh from the animal. So is this meat alive? Are there metabolic Um, processes (laughs) happening? Yeah. I mean, these cells are definitely alive. I mean, they're, they're, they're alive just, I mean, you're, you're basically trying to mimic the conditions of, uh, you know, growth in an animal, how those cells would grow in an animal. So the muscle, the fat, the connective tissue that you're, you're creating, you know, the goal is to have that be nutritionally equivalent or superior, you know, have the same taste profile, et cetera. I mean, these are real animal cells. If, if you were allergic to meat, uh, you know, had a red meat allergy or something like that, you would be allergic to this. Um, of course, when you actually eat the tissue, it's not, living you know it's it's dead because you're removing it from oxygen and nutrients and you're also cooking it in the vast majority of cases um so you know it should be basically very functionally nutritionally etc everything that you would expect like if you put a piece of meat next to each other one came from a bioreactor one came from an animal there would probably be no real difference between the two so a chemist would not be able to distinguish I think it depends on like what level you want to drill down into. There's always going to be variance probably between these sorts of things. But I mean, even again, there's more data that needs to be collected because these products are just coming to market. But I mean, from a nutritional standpoint, uh, you know, very, very similar sort of protein level, amino acid breakdown, uh, lipid composition, because I mean, you're taking these, these, like we were talking about before, there's a lot of intrinsicness to biology. And so you're, you're able to control the feed that you're, you're giving these cells. So rather than, you know, having a, an animal eat, you know, grass or, or, or soy and, and, and corn feed uh, on a farm, here you're breaking down that feed into its constituent components, glucose, amino acids, vitamins, et cetera. So those cells are, you know, you're keeping them alive just as they would be in a body. So they're able to accumulate the nutrients and other things that, you know, you'd have in an animal regardless. That there's some differences. So vitamin B12, for instance, produced in animal guts from bacteria. So we don't have an animal gut in this process. So you can add in the vitamin B12. And there's there's things that might be more and there might be less. And that's something that we'll have to tune over time. But because you do have a lot of control over the process, you know, theoretically what, you know, you are what you eat. So what you feed these cells is what you, is the outcome that you can get. And that also opens the door to creating healthier products. So, you know, something that's lower in saturated fat, lower in cholesterol, for instance, um, you know, you can combine different products to, you know, have them, you know, beef with omega-3 fatty acids in it, for instance. So those things are all on the table when you have more control over the, the process. Yeah. Well, you know who I am. So you, you probably have a sense for like my, um, 
inherent bias against clever humans thinking that they're finding shortcuts to things. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, it reminds there's this, I forget the, the quote from, I think it's Einstein who says you can't solve a problem with the same way of thinking that created the problem. And I, I can't help feeling like this, this seems like, um, you know, the modern, the contemporary iteration of the idea that butter's bad for you. So we're going to create margarine and, and factories rather than coming from milk. And, and when I was a kid, margarine was the thing, the healthy alternative, you know, um, I can't believe it's not butter. Oh my God. It, aren't we lucky we get to eat margarine? And then 20 years later, we find out margarine's way worse for you than butter ever was, right? Or we're going to stop all forest fires uh, in the Sierras and, um, you know, let let nature be, uh, you know, protect nature. And then 30 years later, it's like now we have fucking massive forest fires because fire's part of the natural cycle. So I'm very skeptical of any human cleverness that seeks to interrupt uh, natural cycles with something better. Cause in my experience, it almost always turns out to be worse. And that's why I started off asking about sponsorship because generally what ends up happening is you find out that this was all a profit driven exercise being cloaked in ethical uh, garb. Right. Like, do you think about that? Do you ever feel like, do you ever ask those questions? Like, is this really going to help anything or is this just making money for, you know, people already have too much of it? Well, I mean, I, I think you have to look at the problem with how meat is produced today and its impact on, yeah. you know, the environment, on, you know, biodiversity, deforestation, pandemic risk, zoonotic, you know, zoonotic disease risk, antibiotic use, et cetera. I mean, these are really multifaceted problems that we've sort of, this is the scenario that we find ourselves in right now. And unfortunately, you know, meat consumption is expected to increase because as countries increase their GDP per capita, they change their diets to a more meat heavy diet. And so, you know, today, Animal agriculture accounts for about 18 to 20% of total greenhouse gas emissions. It's a leading cause of deforestation. It's a leading cause of air and water pollution, you know, around the world. It uses 75% of the world's medically relevant antibiotics. It's a huge sort of risk to the next pandemic, et cetera. Um, and, you know, taking that into account, those that's sort of what the toll is today but meat consumption is expected to rise, you know, between 50 to 100% by the year 2050. And so these problems are only going to exacerbate because, yeah, it would be great if you told people, you know, hey, don't eat as much meat. We need to lower meat consumption. We need to, you know, go vegan or something like that. But, I mean, if you look at the evidence, it's just that there's no stopping this sort of trend. Like, people want to eat meat. And so... If that is the case, can we provide them meat, the same meat that they want, just produced in a different way that has much less negative externalities? I mean, that is the fundamental goal of what we're trying to do here with this new sort of you know, way of, of producing meat. So I, I think that's 
that's like the issue. It's, it's that, it's not that, <laughs> you know, I would love that we didn't have to come up with techno solutions to all of our, our problems, but that's sort of how we've gotten ourselves into by having eight to 9 billion people on, on earth. Right. Yeah. But, yeah. but, you know, on a macro level, the solution that people are proposing is exactly the mechanism that got us to where we are now, right? So Archer Daniels Midland has been saying for decades, we need to farm more land, we need more Roundup, we need more chemicals, we need more fertilizers because we need to feed a growing world. Aren't we wonderful? We're feeding the growing world. And you know, whenever anyone would say like, hey, this is unsustainable, the topsoil's washing away, all these chemicals are leaching into our aquifers, you know, this this is not the way to do it. Their response would be, you know, there are 3 billion people on the earth, we need to feed them, right? Like, what are we going to do? We need to go forward. It, and it's just frustrating to me because the argument is, is always we need to go forward, we need technology to fix the fucking mess that we've gotten ourselves into. But nobody's acknowledging technology is what got us into this mess. Like we, you know, and that's why I st I, I quoted paraphrase. Yeah, I mean, I can't, Einstein. I can't, like, you know. But what I mean, what would you do? <laughs> like, you, you can't necessarily go back in time. Um, so, I mean, what what would what? you pose as like a if this is something that we understand to be, you know, a major cause of a lot of problems in in the world i mean how would you otherwise go about reversing that that trend well i i mean i think i'm i'm not obviously someone in charge of uh you know any of these policies so i don't present myself as an expert um but i do think that someone was telling me recently about a, a cartoon she saw i don't know if it was in the new yorker or where she saw it but it was two panels in the top panel, there's someone on stage talking to an audience, right? A TED Talk or something. And um, the person says, raise your hand if you want change. And everyone raises their hand. And then the, he says, raise your hand if you want to change. And no one does, right? So, exactly. I mean, I think that is the problem. You're right. It's a conundrum. We're in a situation where no one wants to change their personal behavior or their diet or their relationship with local farmers or whatever it is, but everyone wants some kind of macro systemic change that won't affect them. And I just yeah. think, you know, I understand that there's a lot of financial incentive to pretend that that's possible, but ultimately I can't think of an example where it has been right. Like how many I'm 61. How many times have I heard, the cure for cancer is right around the corner. Just keep funding this. Or we're going to have free energy in, in the next 10 years. It never fucking happens, you know? But well, it keeps I, us I running that, on mean, the hamster wheel. I think, yeah, I, mean, I think it depends on what timescale you view change as being significantly measurable and things like that. But I, I mean, I mean, we do analogize this sort of approach to what you've seen in renewable energy development and also electrical vehicle, electric vehicle development where the, the con conceptually, right. You know, with, with Tesla, for instance, you had Elon Musk saying, I'm going to make a car that is an electric vehicle that runs on batteries that people are going to want. 
And that was something, you know, electric vehicles existed 100 years ago from a technology point of view. I mean, we had, you know, the technology to do that. Um, but the idea was that, you know, no one is going, no one's been switching to these things because they cost way more. So like how are, and, and they're, they're inconvenient. And, and so who wants to own these things? Um, but eventually, you know, he developed a car that people, it had a very good performance that people wanted to drive. And now costs are coming down where they're actually being able to intersect the sort of average cost of a combustion vehicle. And so what you're seeing now is adoption really being, you know, taking off where you're starting to see these inflection points with generally how, how an innovation diffuses throughout society is like you have some sort of inflection point, you know, after five or 10% of adoption rate. Um, And that's usually, you know, driven by, you know, decreases in costs and performance and things like that. And then, then society does adopt it quite rapidly, actually, like, you know, this happens a lot with, I, you know, cell phones, radio, you know, radios, a bunch of things that happens, it happened in the food industry as well, you know, switching from uh, insulin derived from pigs to recombinantly produced insulin in, in medicine that I mean, that was a shift that happened within just 10 years and, and things like that. So the idea here, again, is, you know, right now, this, this concept that we're talking about right now, culturing animal cells to actually make meat, meat products is very expensive today. Um, but the idea is that if you can compete on taste and price, which are the main drivers of human consumption for food purchasing habits, um, then you can start to see this adoption, this actual change take place where people don't have to make the behavioral switch. They can still sort of, you know, be doing good without realizing it. So unfortunately, I know that sounds like sort of overly optimistic and things like that and things like that. But I I do think that to me, I mean, I think that's sort of the only way that we have out of this because, you know, some of the other things that are being proposed to, uh, like, you know, create more efficient animal agriculture production. I mean, I think that falls into the lines of what you were talking about before, which is that, oh, we're just going to do this better. It's, you know, more and more and more and more and more, you know, we're going to hang on to, you know, creating billions and billions of chickens every year and, and, you know, that sort of thing. So I think this switches that paradigm a little bit where, you know, this should be less resource intensive. There's a lot of potential benefits um, from switching to this sort of methodology for, for meat production. And so that's the driving force. I mean, is it perfect? Uh, could, could there be a world in some other fifth dimension that, that is, you know, hasn't walked into this scenario? you know, that potentially that would be great, but I think we find ourselves on this one planet. So we sort of have to come up with solutions on how to get our, get our way out of here fast. Uh, yeah. You know, the yeah. Scenario. I mean, it does become more of a philosophical, uh, you know, issue, but the, the two examples that you raised like Tesla, for example, um, you know, you're absolutely right. The technology has existed for a long time. Um, but then my question would be, you know, step back a little bit do electric cars actually solve our problems? When you look at the amount of energy that goes into the production of a Tesla, most of which is happening in China in coal-powered electrical factories, um, and the the you know uh, production of air pollution and water pollution and so on, and then the the battery process and the lithium mining. I mean, it's very debatable that this is actually. Solving it's, it's any not, problems. It's, 
it's not debatable, actually. I mean, the light, like life cycle analysis and what you, you know, how you study the environmental impact of a product is to look at that throughout the entire life cycle of its existence from the upstream supply chain and the, the mining of raw materials, et cetera. So, I mean, you compare that apples to apples to a combustion vehicle, you know, basically it, it the, the battery electric cars will have a slightly higher footprint from the moment they're created because there's more, as you mentioned, a little bit more upstream uh, material uh, sort of burden, but over the, you know, quickly within like 10,000 miles of actually driving the vehicle, because you're no longer emitting, uh, you know, but burning that fuel directly in the car, you, you start to get benefits. Um, and so that, and those benefits will increase over time as grids get greener and renewable energy gets deployed. And so, you know, right now you can still plug into a, uh, you know, a grid that is still 40% fossil fuels or something like that. So you're still, you know, it's burning carbon by running your battery. Um, but, you know, obviously the way things are moving with, you know, the deployment of renewable energy around the world, which has to happen, um, you know, and that that's already happening, but much slower than what needs to happen. And, you know, people have sat on their hands for decades at this point in terms of actually being able to, to deploy that. But yeah, I mean, so yeah, I mean, there's no free lunch, right? You know, these things, they have a footprint, any, any form of production of anything has a, has a footprint, but it's, yeah, you know, is it, is it better? And I mean, yes, in the case of electric vehicles, I mean, there's, it's, it's a clear, yes. Um, it's a well, clear it, win. Okay. I can't, I can't just leave it there. Although I'd like to be very uh, courteous <laughs> to my guest, but it is debatable. I've read the debates. Um, the data coming out of China, for example, on the amount of energy used to produce the the chassis and the body or whatever they're producing is not reliable data. The data coming from lithium far, lithium mines in Bolivia is not reliable data. There's a huge amount of financial incentive to fudge those numbers to make it look as good as possible. Financial incentive and also possibly ethical incentive because people are willing to lie for a good cause when necessary. And, and a lot of people believe this is a good cause. Um, and also there's the question of as things become cheaper, do people use them more? So, you know, often I forget, there's a term for that in economics as you think as it, be, as the production load uh, decreases, you're going to actually save environmental impact or lessen environmental impact. But then as the thing becomes cheaper, people use it more or buy more of it, consume more of it. And so you end up sometimes with this sort of um, unanticipated outcome. But in any case, I think you're right that, you know, we're, I, I mean, I think what we're going around here is this question of like, can we solve the problem by continuing the process in a different way? Or does the process in fact have to be altered either voluntarily or through, you know, hitting some sort of wall? You use the example of insulin uh, production, you know, which is a really good example um, of increasing the efficiency and, and scalability of, of insulin production. And yet look at what people are paying for insulin, which is, you know, controlled by another industry and look at the rates of diabetes that are going up and up and up. So it's like, you know, do we keep patching on patches or, or is there something fundamental that needs to happen? And I know that's not your responsibility or, you know, that's a, yeah, I mean, those are like, yeah, these are like big, tough, yeah. like, quite, I mean, what often comes like, I think this, this is sort of intersecting with, 
I mean, we often hear this as well, which is that, you know, a lot of the problems that I think you're talking about there, these are like sort of like problems of modern day capitalism, um, which are, are sort of separate entities. And, and I think unless you're going to propose a solution to that, which is saying like, you know, create, a, a, you know, make all these societies and countries shift how we've been doing things uh, from a sort of socioeconomic development point of view, you know, give me a good solution to that. And, you know, maybe I, I, I'd, I'd like to work within those boundaries, but I think with the boundaries that we have, with the systems that we have in place, I mean, this is sort of how we think you can get the largest amount of change in the shortest amount of time. And yeah, I think to your point, does this continue on, you know, directions that maybe aren't as the best, I, you know, there is some band-aiding, I think that you can, you can argue um, with these sorts of approaches. But again, it's sort of like, I don't know, give me something else to give me other, some sort of like paradigm to work within. And then we can come up with maybe actual more, more foundational solutions. Um, but, yeah. you know, people need to eat. So if we're going to keep, you know, having more people and they want meat, um, like I said, I, I think, you know, that the more of the, the foundational solution is that people eat less meat, but I mean, that's sort of not yeah. what we observe. Well, are you familiar with the Savory Institute? Alan Savory, do you know who he is? Sure. A re really interesting guy. I mean, that that's a different paradigm, right? That's a, a an alternative that we haven't really talked about, which is not necessarily reducing the consumption of meat, but changing the way that meat is raised so that animals are able to roam freely. And I don't know somebody I was talking to recently, I forget the statistic. I don't want to make a mess by misquoting it, but it was the amount of open grasslands in the United States that are just empty right now. You know, they might have fracking installations or it's forest service land or whatever. Um, but it's a, apparently there were more bison in North America 300 years ago than no, you dispute that? No, I, I don't. That's not really true. Um, and the carbon intensity of like raising cattle today is, is much higher than what you'd have like a, of a bison grazing actual, actual grasslands. Like, you know, that, so I, I can share resources with you on this. Um, you know, I, I don't, I also don't want to quote numbers right off the, the top of my head because this is not my, you know, exact area of expertise, but I mean, essentially, yeah, regenerative agriculture purports that, you know, by changing the way that you're raising animals, by rotating them on grant, on land, you can get soil benefits. You can actually have carbon sequestration that goes into the soil. Um, and, you, you know, it's a higher welfare standard for the animals, no antibiotics. Um, you know, so there's a lot of, you know, things that are potentially good about that. I think, you know, if you look at the evidence, again, I'm not an expert in this particular area, but I follow a lot of people that are on Twitter and elsewhere. Um, so I've read a bit about this, but I think, you know, essentially the story that you can sequester carbon using this methodology is a little bit sort of distorted because yes, you can store carbon in the soil, but that carbon will only, you know, there's a, there's a, sort of maximum saturation point. And that happens pretty, pretty quickly. And generally what happens is, you know, you're taking already degraded cropland that's been tilled 
you might be converting that to like a pasture raised system, that rotational grazing system, et cetera. So you're sort of, you have very depleted carbon stores. And then once you switch to this new system, you have some benefit there in terms of, you know, measurement of carbon sequestration in the soil. Now, the problem is that, again, that sort of saturates over time. And also it's, it's potentially not long-term in, in a meaningful amount. And so, you know, on a 30 year or more basis. So the, the science there is still sort of like, you know, being developed carbon soil measurements and that sort of thing. Um, but I think that one of the biggest problems with regenerative agriculture that is often not told is that you would have to lower meat consumption dramatically because it uses two or three times more land than an intensive farming system. And there's just not a lot of land on earth to, to go around for these sorts of things. And so basically, if people want to support regenerative agriculture, you have to sort of be okay with a society like the United States that's number one in terms of meat consumption per capita to really reduce that by like 70 to 80%. And like, then you know, if you had a regenerative system, that's about how much meat you can produce um, per person because of land constraints. Um, so that's like the biggest problem. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's great in, in some ways, soil health and things like that. Um, but it just, you can't feed the amount of people on earth, the, the amount of meat that they're eating today using those systems. It's just not compatible. Yeah, it's so hard to talk about stuff like this because, <clears throat> you know, obviously neither of us our our uh, expert in this and even if we were there's so many there's so much nuance to the these discussions you know for example you're talking about land use for um regenerative versus industrial meat production but like you know are we talking about okay we're comparing the amount of land that animals need to to wander around freely to so that they don't um, deplete the grass and you know so it's sustainable to feedlots you know the amount of land that's taken up for feedlots and slaughterhouses or whatever is is included in the industrial system does that include all the acreage of corn and soy farms yes. to feed those yeah. animals? You know, yeah. So, I mean, intensive farming, even again, this is accounting for the gland that's raised, that's, you know, used to actually, you know, have the animal, but also all the feed, which is a, a, also right. a vast majority of land. And so, so all the I chemical mean, if, inputs and the, you know, the uh, insecticides and the environmental yeah, impact exactly. of all that, it, it becomes... I feel like we're we're reaching some sort of a point in in society in general and politics and science and medicine and everything where it's like I don't know have things just gotten so complicated that it's impossible to know what the fuck is real anymore because how are you, how can you calculate all that right how can we go okay let's go to soy farms and look at all the chemicals that go into that how much energy is used to produce the insecticides and the fungicides and the fertilizers. Well, <sighs> that is actually what people, people do in these, in these studies. So there's databases that, mm -hmm. you know, people, you know, there's on farm, you know, all the, there's public databases that you can go to, you know, this can be regional. It could be, you know, based on certain, you know, production systems, et cetera. So there's variance in different systems and things like that. 
Um, and so this science of called, it's called life cycle assessment is, is really looking at that. I mean, it's, it's basically to, and yeah, to your point, this is extremely complex stuff. This, this sort of science has evolved and become more important because it's a really key indicator of how to model, you know, what we should be doing in terms of like how to address climate change and things like that. Um, But I mean, that is, that is to say that there is, this information out there and that is how people do these studies and and of course you don't rely on a single study there's you know you rely on the preponderance of others i mean this is just how science sort of works right um but, but then I who's mean, funding the study have, who owns I mean, the journal have, the study gets actually, published in? Actually, it's, well i mean you, look yeah, i mean you can question anything but i think you know then it's just saying like i mean do you believe in science as a sort of process and, and discipline um, or is that, you know, has that become completely corruptible in all circumstances? Not all circumstances. Um, no, no, no. Don't, don't straw man me. I'm not saying in all circumstances, but what I'm saying is that the, I agree with you. And I think life cycle assessment is, is crucial, but there are so many chinks in the armor along the way between when the data is gathered to when the data is presented to the public, if ever for financial chicanery to happen, right? And I think that that's the crisis of our age, right? It's in science, it's in politics, it's in religion, it's it's in the the collapsing trust in institutions, which you know makes life really fucking complicated because nobody knows what to believe. And and I agree with you, the data exists, but but I I guess I feel more um, cynical about trusting the data than than you do. Yeah, I mean, I I think there's it's okay to be skeptical, of course, but I, I do think I mean, as someone that's like published one of these studies or co-authored one of these studies and worked on one of these projects for for three years, um, you know, I, I think it's it's like anything. It's you know, you don't trust just one group that does it. You 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 sort of look at you know, this group is is looking at this analysis and under these scenarios and these conditions, you're you're looking at it this way you're looking at it this way, you're looking at it this way, you know, there's a, a correlation of evidence that begins to, you know, tell a story and that story gets clear over time as better evidence, you know, emerges. Um, so, I mean, that's just how science works. Um, so yeah, I, as a scientist, I'm, I'm pro, uh, pro science, I guess. Uh, obviously there is, you know, there's bias in, in, in anything, but I, I, I do think the way to, you know, sort of extinguish that is through more, science and better studies and more diverse, you know, approaches and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Especially public funded as much as possible uh, or complete transparency if it's funded by industry. Yeah. Have yeah. You ever... So, I mean, that's, go yeah. No, go ahead. I mean, that's, yeah. that's a big problem. I mean, obviously we want, you know, more, more publicly funded science and things like that. And um, you know, that's a trend in a lot of, countries that you know the budgets for science haven't kept up over time you know it's they just keep getting cut and and more and more so you know i'm sure we're aligned on that that we could definitely have more investment in these these sorts of things to you know hopefully break three of the need to actually call on industry to fund our research um or philanthropy you know you know some people would say you know the gates and melinda Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation or whatever, whatever billionaire foundation. I mean, more and more science is, is being funded by that because there's a gap in actual public research dollars going into the, the thing. But I, I mean, I would say, you know, the, the regenerative agriculture 
side of things. I mean, that's also heavily industry backed um, as well. I mean, all of these big meat companies are, are really buying into that story too. So, I mean, you have to do, you have to do your due diligence and look at it, you know, on, on both sides of the coin again. <laughs> all five sides of the coin. Um, have, have you ever read a book called Lives of a Cell by Lewis Thomas? I have not. Um, I, I would love if you ever if you ever read it, I would I would love to hear your thoughts on it. it he was um, he was the head of Sloan Kettering um, Hospital in New York, I think, in the 70s. He was an oncologist. And um, he when he retired, maybe he was still working. I'm not sure. But anyway, he, he wrote this book, Lives of a Cell. It's probably mid 70s, 75, somewhere in 76, maybe. Um, but it was like one of the first kind of like um, popular science books written by a researcher and a you know physician who was a really good writer. So mm-hmm. you know, kind of like the precursor to Oliver Sacks or Neil deGrasse Tyson. You know, like sort of the beginning of this idea of a science communicator who was really good at communication. You know, not just mm-hmm. sort of. Uh, talking to a journalist or something. Um, and it, it's it's really interesting because I remember the first chapter, he he talks about how every culture around the world has a folk method for dealing with warts. And like in Ireland, you have a wart, you take a potato and you <laughs> cut it in half and you like rub the wart with half of it. And then you like walk around with it on your head and then you bury the other half on in a full moon or something. There, there are all these. And he sort of goes through five or six different cultures and they all seem to have it. And he says, and they all work. And as an oncologist who spent my, my life doing research, trying to, trying to distinguish between different types of cells and eliminate some without hurting the ones adjacent. Like this is a miracle. And I don't understand why we're not pursuing this in research, you know, hypnosis, somehow the body has the capability of looking at a tumor or a wart, which is essentially a tumor. It's, it's, you know, an out of control growth of one kind of cell surrounded by healthy cells, the body can do this. The The mind, body, whatever this matrix is, is capable of saying, eliminate those, leave those alone. And yet we're employing chemicals and radiation and, and all sorts of, uh, you know, barbarities uh, to accomplish this. Anyway, it's, there's no real point. I just thought as a stem cell <laughs> uh, scientist, that would be a really interesting read for you. Yeah, I mean, there are, I mean, you know, there's a lot of things that we don't know. Um, there's a lot of things that we, we do know and have an understanding of, I, I think. And so there's, and there's a spectrum in between that as sort of, you know, that goes along over, over time. Um, but I mean, that's what makes science interesting. I mean, it, it can definitely be wrong in some cases, but it is, I think, a you know, hopefully a self-correcting mechanism uh, over, over time. Yeah. Yeah, over over vast swaths of time, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting how these things are all converging, right? Like you talked about um, analogizing uh, lab-grown meat to uh, electric vehicles. 
I feel like artificial intelligence also is analogous to a lot of what we're talking about now, right? Like there, there seem, I don't know if, if it's a, a trick of perception, you know, sort of a, a conceptual parallax where everything just seems to be converging at the distance, or if we actually live in a time where there is some sort of convergence happening, um, where technology is taking us into interesting places that are potentially miraculous um, or devastating. I think it's probably always been happening. I think it's just accelerated by the advent of how we communicate more efficiently. And, and there's definitely, you know, you know, some intent behind, like you say, having these disciplines merge. I mean, there's literally like convergent research is like a, a thing that mm. a lot of granting agencies want to see is that you're, you know, having this interdisciplinary approach that's bringing in these new technologies to advance and, and you know, try to solve something in a way that, you know, maybe hasn't before by taking learnings from XYZ field over here and, you know, applying them there. I mean, so there's definitely intent that I think is happening across science to merge different disciplines and things like that. And, you know, and then it just seems to accelerate through, you know, computers, iPhones, use of AI now. I mean, yeah, yeah you can go on and I use ChatGPT and other AI engines basically every day to, you know, discover information in a, in a more efficient manner at this, at this point. Um, do you, and do you use them really... for like research or for, or for calculations and, and sort of novel information? Um, both. I mean, I, my, I use something called perplexity, which is an AI engine that, you know, chat GPT can make, make stuff up, uh, which is one of the, the problems that's been cited. Like, you know, if you say, you know, tell me about this and then it, it will cite a, like a fake paper. Um, but perplexity is one that, you know, it gives you the citations. And so it just makes research a lot more efficient. So if you want to type in like any of these, some of these questions that we were talking about before, you know, you can type that in and then, you know, it will cite the, you know, pull the relevant information out. It will give you the citation. Then you can click on that and learn more and dive deeper. And it's just, you know, a more efficient way of doing things. So I use that for a lot of, a lot of just open questions that I was like, I don't really know the answer to this. Like, let's start the research process. Um, but also like coding and things like that. If you want to do data analysis, like that's not my like formal training. So it's something that, you know, I'd, I'd otherwise have to be like Googling for hours on how to fix this one little thing. But you know, these co-pilot type of, um, you know, code generators um, are super efficient. Yeah. It's, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. yeah. Fascinating. Elliot, uh, I really appreciate your, your expertise and your, um, you know, your, your sincere uh, efforts to improve the state of, of humanity and, and also uh, the, the existence of, of non-human animals. I'm sorry if I come across as uh, a hostile, I, I, I'm not, I hope you're right. Uh, I just feel like um, I think by, by uh, I don't know, like personality, cause I've always been kind of a grumpy skeptic, even when I was younger. So I don't think it's necessarily an age thing. Um, but yeah, it's it's interesting how. I mean, I, I don't know. It does things do get better sometimes in some ways. Um, I just I just feel like instead of focusing on on making insulin 
more efficiently, we should be looking at reducing diabetes. You know, it's like that, that's sort of the, Mm -hmm. but you're right. There's, it's not, it's sort of a, uh, it's sort of a false equivalency. Like you can't, you don't need to choose one or the other. Both can happen. So uh, I appreciate your, your efforts. Yeah. I mean, I, I, obviously I'm familiar with your, your podcast and work. So I, I didn't know exactly what type of uh line of you know, sort of skepticism or, or not that you were going to to have with, with this, but I mean, I think it's, it's good. I mean, this is a new technology, especially when you mix technology and food, people get scared. I mean, they get skeptical. I mean, we've seen this with other you know genetic modification or other things like that. Um, and so, I mean, that's part of the reason why, you know, I, Try, trying to go out there and, you know, get people to understand what this is, you know, a little bit more so that they can start to be a little bit more curious rather than, you know, just dismissive based on other biases that they might have or things like that. Um, so, you know, people, hopefully someone learned something from from the conversation and I'm happy to, you know, engage and interact with people um, further, uh, you know, if people are interested um, learning more and hopefully following the development of this field for, you know, better or, or worse, depending on where you, where you stand. Uh, where, where can people interact with you? Where do they find you? Um, so I'm, I'm fairly active on Twitter, just at Elliot Swartz, um, you know, on LinkedIn a little bit more now that Twitter seems to be going in some sort of certain direction. So we'll, we'll see with that. But uh, I mean, I, as a, you know, I'm a public facing scientist, at least I, I try to be um, so, I mean, my email is also, you know, available online, um, you know, if people want to chat on the Substack forum or something like that and have questions, I'm happy to go in there and share resources or other things. Um, cool. yeah. Thank you. I, I appreciate your, your patience with my skepticism. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say And ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation
a big deal if you wanna be free. Say what you wanna feel. Spend the night with me. I'm gonna take you up in my arms, and if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms. We'll dance into the ground.